As we continue on our series on the book of Esther, I invite you now to open your Bibles in the book of Revelation. You heard me right. As we preach through the book of Esther in the morning, when I have the opportunity of preaching in the evening, I'm trying to preach from other texts on related themes and then have the opportunity to expand on things on which I didn't have time to in the morning. So tonight we pick up on Revelation chapter 4. It will be at the very end of your Bible, a few pages left like mine up here, and we'll read chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, 11 verses. Hear this with faith and love. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the throne thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You might find this hard to believe, but I have found the answers and solutions to all our problems. I did it this week. All that is wrong in this world, I found it. As I prepare for this sermon, I thought about our series in the book of Esther, the problems that they face there in that story, how we meet some of the same issues, how we respond to those problems. And as I thought about that all, I suddenly found the answer. You might not like it, but here it is. 
make me king. Make me king of the world, and I will fix it for you. I know I'm not perfect. Many things are outside my control. But if I had enough power, boy, would this world be a better place. I know I have limited capacity and wisdom, but I do have unlimited opinions. If only I had the power to make those into irrevocable decrees like certain characters in the book of Esther, I can guarantee life would be in a better shape. And at least some of it would be easier for all of us. If only I was in charge. If you find this answer to all your problems somewhat lacking, at least you have to admit, admit that you think so because maybe you think you could do a better job at being king of the world. Let those who never thought themselves to have all the answers, or at least most of them, to what is wrong in the world and how to fix it, be the first to throw a stone at my plan. The truth is, as we spend some time in the book of Esther, and we see how many problems are created for the people of God by the people in power, and then we realize that our lives, thousands of years later, are not that different, we have the warrant to ask ourselves, who, after all, is running the world? And again, things would be easier if it were you, wouldn't it? Deep down, I believe we are all sure we would do a better job of calling the shots than whoever is at power any given time. And since we are not, as we face the many trials of daily life in the trenches, we often would like to speak to the manager and sort out why we did not get the circumstances we ordered on our plate. Yet, as Christians who confess their faith in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we should know better. We know who created and runs the world. So why do we live as if we didn't? How can we forget so quickly and often that we confess we belong to a powerful and good, merciful God? Tonight, as we peek behind the cosmic curtain of reality with John, the writer of Revelation, we take a look at who is in charge. We see who he is, what he does, and how we should respond. As we are struck by the flabbergasting scene described in Revelation 4, we are reminded that worship is the best preparation to face this life and the next. Again, I believe this is the main lesson we can learn from this text tonight. Worship is the best preparation to face this life and the next. We'll see that in two points this night. First, God rules the world with love and with power. Again, God rules the world with love and with power. We see that in verses 1 through the first half of verse 6. 
Chapter 4 of Revelation, to give you some context, marks the beginning of the book's main section. While other apostles in the New Testament, like Paul or Peter, had visions similar to John's up to this point in the book, now things get interesting in Revelation. The scene we just read about is fundamental to the rest of the book. How so? Well, let's dive in and see. John begins claiming that he saw saw an open door to heaven. He was granted access to the heavenly world in the Spirit, with capital S. The voice that calls him is the same voice that spoke to him earlier, the first voice like a trumpet, as he describes, taking us back to chapter 1. And if you go there later, you will read that that is Jesus Christ himself inviting John to see heaven to see the dwelling place of God. The description of the throne room reflects ancient Near Eastern monarchies in which a ruler sat in his royal court surrounded by his various attendants. And again, think of Ahasuerus in the book of Esther and his minions working before him at the king's gate. It's a similar scene. But the the one seated on the heavenly throne, of course, Obviously, it's God. John's depiction of God is very sparing, using impressionistic rather than realistic terms, as someone once said. He looks like jasper and carnelian, precious, bedazzling stones. And speaking of bedazzling, there is an emerald-looking rainbow surrounding the throne. And again, do not stop to look for special significance in the type of stones or their colors. There are jewels simply suggesting God's majesty and splendor and John trying to describe what he sees with the words that he knows. The sight should overwhelm and awe the reader with the magnificence and the mysteriousness of God. An apostle can barely describe what he sees. And then again, and he keeps saying that, surrounding the throne, surrounding the throne, John sees 24 other thrones, each occupied by an elder, dressed in white and wearing a golden crown. In Revelation 21, at the end of the book, John describes the wall of New Jerusalem by saying that on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. And on the 12 foundations of the wall, he says, are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Taking a cue from that, we can imagine and guess that the 24 thrones represent then, just like the 24 names on the wall, the totality of the church throughout history. The Jews and the Gentiles. The old and the New Testament believers together, worshiping God eternally. So yes, they are on one level angelic court servants of God, but they also function as representatives of God's people bringing worship worship to Him eternally. 
to flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and rumble coming from the throne are typical characteristics in the Bible of the presence of God. Perhaps nowhere as remarkable as some of you might remember from the thundering, flaming mountain of Mount Sinai in Exodus. And one after the other, these details add to the sense of mystery, of awe, of trembling, of fear caused by the, the one who approaches the divine ruler of the universe. John has identified the seven torches of verse 7 as the seven spirits of God. He already talked about them in chapter 1. There he said that they represent at the same time the seven archangels who serve God and also the spirit of God himself who goes at work to the world. And then, finally in this section, there is the sea of glass as it were, like crystal, again fumbling to try to find words to describe what he sees. And in many places in the Old Testament, the sea represents a monster to be tamed as part of God's redemptive work. In Revelations, as you see if you read the book, it has this aspect, is always connected to chaos, evil, rebellion of the cosmos after the fall. For example, the beast of chapter 13, a ferocious beast that we already talked about and made reference to a certain Persian king, rises out of the sea. Yet here, before the throne, chaos, darkness, and evil are stilled. They have been subdued before the throne of God. They don't frighten anyone anymore. So what do we make of all of that then? How can we understand and interpret and even find some comfort of such crazy things we can say? Perhaps nothing better explain how to interpret this scene than a slide that a seminary professor showed our class in a lecture about Revelation. It went like this. I'll describe it for you. I'm not going to show it. It was a simple picture drawn with the simple lines and circles of two people, a college student and a first grader. Both are reading the book of Revelation. The college student has a thought bubble with the following quote. This came from my professor. I didn't write this. The quote says, mm, Let's see now. What does the locust of Revelation 9 mean? The horse part must refer to one of the months of the Chinese calendar. Crowns of gold must refer to Babylonian kings. Women's hair surely suggests that it is women who will bring about the final downfall of mankind. Scorpion tails, mm, let me see. And there's a lot of dots indicating that he will keep thinking that kind of stuff. On the other side of the slide, there's a first grader, also with a thought balloon. His simply says, awesome, it's a monster. The point 
of that, and that was the point of that whole lecture, is that we can spend the rest of our lives over-interpreting the details of this passage we just read, or we can take it as a whole and let it cause an impression on us. Yes, I say that after explaining a lot of details, we do need to understand some particulars of this text, but only to make sense of this whole scene and immerse ourselves in it and be impacted by it. As you read this and other passages of Revelation later, let their shock and awe wash over you, overwhelm your senses. There is a throne described with a glow of precious stones. There is worship. There is thunder and lightning. There is fire. There is a sea, but it looks like glass and is still as crystal. There is a rainbow. There is glory, colors, majesty, wonder, light, blast, splendor. There is even a choir. God is in his temple. Praise the Lord. Is our reaction to scenes like this. And that, my friends, that what John just saw is the manager's office. That is the control room of reality and history. Before any beast rises from the sea, any trumpets, any antichrist false prophets appear before seals and signs and mountains of fire falling from heaven, as will be written in this book later, there is before all that, a vision of God sitting on his throne, surrounded by constant praise and worship. And this is why the vision of Revelation 4 marks the beginning of this section, and like I said, is a pivotal point to the whole book. And in this scene, we see two very important things for our comfort today and tonight. First, I would like to highlight that there is evil in God's immediate sight, but that evil is under his control. At the sight of the Lord, evil is still as the waters of the Galilean Sea when the God-man said, peace, be still. This is the God we are here, gathered right now, today, to worship. The God that says, peace, be still, and evil itself obeys. We might not be facing the threat of genocide as a group, like the Jews in the book of Esther. Yet some of you today are dealing with cancer, with neurological diseases, with loved ones decaying at our sight. And maybe that kind of depression and anguish that leaves you in your bed in the morning as good as that. And when we read this text, whatever is happening to you right now, you can be assured that God knows, that God sees, and that God is in control. So when life seems absurd, when nothing makes sense, remember 
the crystal sea of Revelation 4, still as glass at the feet of our God. But even more critical, I believe, as I said before, is the rainbow. The rainbow surrounding the throne should immediately make us think of that one that appeared after the flood. There, it was assigned to Noah and his family a promise that God would not destroy earth again by a flood. And it has been before us ever since a symbol of God's mercy. This rainbow, says one commentator, is second in importance only to the throne. It tells us that there is no triumph for God's sovereignty at the expense of his mercy. The rainbow is a perpetual reminder that God will hold you in his everlasting arms, come what may. And even if evil takes your life, death does not have the final word anymore. It would only bring us closer to him. This, friends, is a good God that rules the universe. The God who is power and is mercy all the way down. Which, of course, to the point of our Astro series is a very different king from Ahasuerus and a very different king from all other things in this world. We are tempted every day to ascribe honor, and praise. And when we have that in mind, when we remember this, life can be very different. How can we remember this? That's that's our second point, our final point tonight. Worship is the antidote to assimilation. Again, worship is the antidote to assimilation. We'll see that from the second half of verse 6 into verse 11. John completes the picture with the final set of characters in the section of the text, beginning in the latter half of verse 6. Sorry, latter half of verse 6. Each of these characters has a different form, a lion, an ox, an eagle, and one like a human figure. Each has six wings and is covered with eyes and the front and the back within surrounding them with eyes. From what we see here and other descriptions of such beings in, for example, Ezekiel chapter 1 or Isaiah chapter 6, these four living creatures represent the highest order of angels, the cherubim and the seraphim that we sang, that we sang about earlier. They stand closest to the throne of God and they worship God day and night without ceasing. They have these shapes as they represent all created living beings. And their many eyes indicate to us as God's agents that God's wisdom, insight is everywhere. God knows everything. God sees everything. We're reminded again. And again, 
making reference to that chapter, their song of praise takes us back to Isaiah 6. It emphasizes the holiness of God, God's all-inspiring perfection. The last line I want to highlight, who was and is and is to come, affirms to us God's supremacy over time and God's authority throughout all time. He created it, he rules it, and he will bring it to completion. And then the 24 elders join the liturgy. Their posture in verse 10, falling down before the throne, is an act of submission and of worship. This is likely an echo from, of the Roman imperial court of John's time, in which visitors would bow themselves as an act of honor and submission to the emperor. They're doing to God, those elders, what people in John's time did to Caesar and what Mordecai refused to do to Haman. And the song of the four living creatures barely ends before the 24 elders take up the notes and continue the celestial acclaim. Heaven rings with glorious music of praise, a never-ending liturgy. And we see why God deserves so much praise and recognition in the lyrics of verse 11. God is worthy because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. God is worthy because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. This is the great theological insight of this passage, I believe. God is sovereign over the world because this is God's world. He is the one who said, let there be, and there was. The words, our Lord and God, in that verse, especially confronts us and reminds us that no other power has a claim to the celestial throne. He is our Lord and our God. And this, this reason, is why we come here weekly to sing, to preach, to pray, to read, to hear, and to confess those very simple words, our Lord and our God. Jesus is Lord, Christians. Ahasuerus is not. Haman is not. Caesar is not. And maybe most importantly for us to hear, you are not. I am not Lord and God. You having ultimate power is not the answer to all your problems. Indeed, certainly neither do I. Roman, Persian, Pennsylvanian claims of power and sovereignty are worse than nothing before God's. They are mere pretenders claiming to have what only God does. Revelation 4 should strike us with the awesome majesty and mystery of of God, our creator and our king. God alone is holy, holy, holy. God is distinct from his creation and nowhere else are we faced with this reality than when we bow our heads, bend our knees and surrender 
our claims to power before him in worship. Worship is at the heart of what it means to belong to God. You see, John's vision of the heavenly throne is the setting of worship. The 24 elders and the four living creatures offer, offer prayer and praise to God day and night without ceasing. And it is within this setting that the rest of the book takes place. It is from here that John will see all those visions. The ongoing celestial worship of God in song and adoration is always there at the background as John sees everything else that is, that will, and that will be. This perpetual liturgy is the fundament that sustains the rest of this book. So because of that, the events in heaven should serve as a model for earthly realities. What we see in Revelation 4 is a guide to everything we do here on Sunday when we gather weekly to rehearse eternity. This is why, for example, we pay, we pay so much attention to the liturgy here at Trinity. This is why every single step of our liturgy is thought out carefully during the week and led with reverence on Sunday and all under much, much prayer. Our readings, our songs, our sermons, our prayers, our confessions should remind us that our worthy and mighty God reigns supreme. And if it comes a day that that's not the case, you leave through that door. More than that, since like John, we can only approach his throne room if we are led there by Jesus, everything we say and do here must lead us to him. This is the simple answer to why we talk so much about Jesus every Sunday. He is, after all, the way to God. He's the truth. And in him we find eternal life. Through him, we can participate on that worship. And once again, remember the rainbow at the throne room. That ark in the sky for Noah was a sign pointing to the ultimate celestial mercy sign, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like Esther, risking her life and her throne and her position as the queen of Persia, Jesus left behind precisely this, this throne room of Revelation 4. He left that throne room where he was praised and served continually and eternally to walk on this dusty earth, to walk among us and to perish for his people. And then, by the eternal mercy of his father looking at the rainbow and that promise that he would save his people according to his promises which he will never forget because they are always in front of him reminding him Christ rose again and brought us back there with him. Through his Holy Spirit the seven torches of fire we are united 
to him as he stands again back in the throne room. So we have this dynamic where our praises here echo and join back and forth the eternal heavenly worship of our holy, holy, holy God who lives forever and ever. In Christ, through his spirit, our praises reach the emerald throne room. And finally then, as we look to our own lives, worship is so important in the book of Revelation because John rightly understood that worship is a rebellious act of defiance against the pressures in this world for us to assimilate to his values. Remember, this book, Revelation, was written when the Romans were in power and their emperor thought he was God himself. And here is a guy saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. And through worship then, every week modeled after this scene, Christians throughout the ages have been declaring their allegiance and loyalty to God alone. Sunday worship is a public statement that the church will bow to no other gods but to God alone. The challenge of revelation to us today is that only God deserves ultimate allegiance. Our awe before God's power and mercy, supremely shown in Christ, should lead us to bend the knee and pledge allegiance to this good, powerful, and eternal King. Tomorrow, your heart will seek many things to bow before created things in which we look for comfort and safety. Tomorrow, then, as we will sing in a minute, following what we just heard, let God's will enfold you in its light and power, and with all the angels above, let your heart confess Him and Him alone, King of glory. Now, let us pray. O Lord, our God, light of the blind and strength of the weak, help us to turn and seek you. For not as we have forsaken our Creator have you forsaken your creation. Let us turn and seek you for we know you incline your ears to those who confess you, who cast themselves upon you, and who weep in your presence. You gently wipe away our tears, and then we weep the more for joy. Because you, Lord, who made us, is remaking us and comforting us in and through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King, and our Redeemer, in whose name we pray and together we say, Amen.